0: Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We are here. We are still here. We are live. I'm Lisa, and I'm here with my partner in true crime, Shell Morgan. Hey, guys. We're back. (laughs) (laughs) After a long, long four-month hiatus, we're here to give you a brand new
1: episode. I am very excited. And we are recording remotely because, as you know, COVID times trying to social distance and all that good stuff. We are doing our very first recording remotely. So please bear with us if there are any kind of technical issues. But I don't think you're going to notice any of that because we're pros. Oh, hell yeah. Um, Before we jump in,
0: I just want to say we have not forgotten about our shoutouts that we promised you. Here is our Apple Podcast Review shoutout for this episode. This one is from NM14. Their review said, do yourself a favor and check out these two gems. It's like you're there with them. Incredibly engaging, entertaining, and educational at the same time.
1: So sweet. Thank you.
0: NM14. So let's start off with me asking, how good is your hearing? I think I have pretty good hearing. Yeah, do you think that you'd be able to identify somebody that you knew really well over a recording? Yes. I'm very
1: good with hearing voices and knowing who that is. Like your friend? Yeah, my friend. What about like your friend's parents? Ooh, maybe. Depends on how much I've hung out with their parents. Or like a boyfriend's parents or something. Definitely a boyfriend's parents, but... Coworker. Definitely coworkers, yep. And an ex-boyfriend? Definitely an ex-boyfriend.
0: For sure ex-boyfriend.
1: Oh, yeah. I've heard ex-boyfriends like across the bar and I'm like, yep, that's that's him." him. Well,
0: studies have shown that as a non-professional, our ear witness reliability is not quite as good as we think. Analyzing someone's voice is actually sometimes even more unreliable than an eyewitness, which as we know can be pretty dodgy too. Even with the advances in DNA forensics, is the answer always black and white? Just because we can obtain DNA from a crime scene, does it always tell us what really happened?
1: That's where this story takes us. Back to 1981, a time before DNA forensics was created. This is a story about a murder that went cold for 17 years, until the help of one Tim Hortons cup, which would finally link the suspect. But the fight wasn't over just yet. Even with DNA and one piece of audio as the key pieces of evidence, this trial dragged on for far too long. It is Canada's longest trial in a first-degree murder case ever. Four trials and 21 years to be exact. This is the story of Diane Worendowicz. Take it away, girl.
0: Diane was the second born child to her parents Hilda and Stefan Wierendowicz. Her given name was actually Louisa Diane, but she decided to go by Diane when she was older. Diane grew up in Burlington, Ontario in a Christian home and attended church with her family twice on Sundays. The household was described by her childhood friends as a warm and friendly home. Diane was super shy as a child, which continued into her adult years. Her friends described her as being very sweet. She was five foot nine, had beautiful blonde hair, and was a little bit lanky, which made her self-conscious. Diane was an extremely private person, especially when it came to her love life. After she graduated high school, she did what I wish I had done. She backpacked throughout Europe for a few months. Living the dream.
1: I love that. I, I didn't know. do that either. I uh, wish I did. Is there still time? <laughs> I think there's still time. COVID. We could go better, girl.
0: I know. <laughs> When it was back to reality, she decided to enroll in a program to become a registered nursing assistant. After successfully completing the program, Diane was 23 and began working as a nursing assistant at McMaster University Medical Center in Hamilton, which was only about a 15-minute drive from where she grew up in Burlington. Diane decided to get her own place and moved into a rental apartment building at 70 Jerome Crescent in Stony Creek. It was one of three identical buildings side by side that sat next to a forested area with a creek that ran through it. It was a highly frequented forest that was used as a shortcut to get to the nearby Fiesta Mall. Teenagers would go hang out and party in it at night, and neighborhood children used it as a playground during the day. Working as a nursing assistant required 12-hour shifts for Diane, which I can vouch for can be pretty exhausting in the medical field. On Friday, June 16th, 1981, Diane finished one of her 12-hour shifts at 8 p.m. Some of her co-workers were going out for drinks later that night and asked her to join them and their other friends, who she didn't know, at a popular bar called Malarkey's. Diane had frequented the bar many times, which was in the Fiesta Mall and was conveniently only a 15-minute walk from her apartment. So after her 12-hour day, Diane was understandably pretty burnt out and really didn't feel like going out, but her friend Lori convinced her to come. So Lori came over to Diane's apartment and they smoked a joint and hung out for a few minutes and then Diane changed into her jeans, white sneakers, a white blouse, and a pink cardigan. Then Lori drove them to Malarky's at around 9pm. When they got to the bar it was super busy, especially since it was a Friday night. They couldn't get a table, so the girls went and stood at the bar and had a beer. A couple of Lori's girlfriends also showed up at around 10 p.m., Janice and Jeanette. Lori introduced them to Diane and then decided to go mingle around the bar, so she left Diane with Janice and Jeanette, who were basically two brand new acquaintances. So remember, Diane is shy, burnt out, and basically only at this bar to appease her friend Lori, so I can't imagine she'd be super impressed with her. The bar got so crowded at one point that a man gave Diane money to order a beer for him because she was so close to the bar. But when he offered to buy her a beer as a thank you, she declined, and Janice testified that she was even a bit snitty towards him. Diane stuck around for a few more beers until she was over it and wanted to go home. Witnesses say that she had around five or six beers. Then she said to Janice that she was tired and to tell Lori I've gone home and Janice watched Diane leave the bar by herself between 11.45 and midnight. The next morning on Saturday, Diane had plans to go shopping with her mom, but she wasn't answering her mom's calls, which was really unlike her. It wasn't until Saturday evening that Hilda and her husband would receive the news that no parent could ever imagine getting. Earlier on Saturday, a 10-year-old boy named Aaron was taking a shortcut through that forest next to Diane's apartment to return a movie at the Stony Creek Fiesta Mall. As he was walking past the ravine that ran through it, he saw the body of a woman lying face down in a shallow creek with a car tire on top of her head. It was Diane. She had never completed that short 15 minute walk home from Malarkey's the night before. When the officials arrived at the scene, they lifted that tire that had been holding her head under the water That's when they saw that the strap of a purse had been tied tightly around her neck. It appeared that she had been strangled with her own purse. Diane's blouse was open, exposing her bra. Her jeans were all the way up, button closed, but the fly was undone. And her underwear were found a few feet away from her body, as well as her white sneakers with the laces still tied.
1: Okay, so they're thinking that there's... Probably, like, she maybe was sexually assaulted. But then her jeans are back on. Pulled her pants back up. Oh,
0: and did the button up? Did the button up, but not the fly. So brutal. How did the underwear get over there and off of her body? Yeah, I don't know. It's as if somebody put her pants back on for her. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would somebody do that after the fact?
1: And leave her there. Like, obviously, she's gonna be found. So, why not just leave the pants there and the shoes undone? Exactly. So, the autopsy report showed that Diane
0: had a bruise on her left eyelid and left cheek, a small scratch on her eyebrow, and a cut on her lower lip. There was dirt in her nose, as well as dirt, gravel, and leaves in her mouth. Her tongue had two cuts and three bruises. There were also bits of gravel found in her lungs. Her genitalia showed no evidence of trauma and her legs didn't show any scratches or bruising. She was likely in and out of consciousness when she was strangled, but ultimately drowned when her head was forced and pinned under the
1: water. So there was no sign of sexual assault whatsoever. Right. So weird. But she was obviously, like, pushed into the ground or dragged or something. Right. If
0: somebody's dragged, their pants would be down. Why would you pull them back up? And she's in a forested area, so if her pants were off and she was being assaulted, she would have scratches on her legs. She would have Mm -hmm. bruises on her legs. Yeah, she would. So numerous samples were taken from Diane's body and the surrounding area. Scrapings from underneath her nails and nail clippings, dirt from her body, oral, vaginal and anal swabs, pubic hair and head hair, blood and urine, and her clothing, underwear and the purse with its contents. When the forensic analysis came back, they were surprised to find that there was semen detected from Diane's vaginal swab, as well as the crotch of her jeans and a trace amount in her underwear. And I just want to say this as a side note, throughout the entire case, including all the articles online, court documents, and interviews, they referred to Diane's underwear as panties oh god can you not
1: <laughs> can call we not panties? use that word it's, it's creepy so it seems creepy. inappropriate too in this situation i guess it is the 80s maybe but like oh god panties. her panties were found stop it Ugh. so
0: with the results coming back positive for semen inside diane's body it's an odd picture to paint Her pants were completely on, almost fully done up except for the fly, but her underwear and shoes were found next to her. Her genitals showed no sign of trauma. According to an expert coroner who testified, most but not all of the rape victims he had examined were left with their genitals exposed, and there were obvious signs of trauma. However, there are still many rape victims who do not show any signs of sexual assault at all, so it can present both ways. But police believed that Diane had been murdered and raped. So on the Saturday, Diane was found. Police went knocking on doors around the Stony Creek area, including Diane's apartment building across the street from where she was murdered. A woman named Mary Jane lived in a house that backed onto the ravine. She spoke with police and said she was upstairs awake between 1.30 and 2.30 a.m. This would be approximately an hour and a half after Diane left the bar she said her dog was growling at the window so she looked outside to see a woman and a man walking past her apartment on the sidewalk they were yelling and arguing at each other as the woman walked ahead of the man heading north towards where diane lived the woman had blonde hair like farrah fawcett and was wearing jeans a sweater and sneakers the man was a head taller than her so remember diane's five foot nine so this would make the man at least six feet tall So he was wearing jeans, a t-shirt, cowboy boots or motorcycle boots, and had dark hair and a mustache. A few minutes later, Mary Jane heard her dog growling again, so she looked out the window and saw that same man. Only he was by himself, and kind of running and stumbling in the opposite direction going south. And he looked approximately 20 to 25 years old. Three days after Diane's murder, a police dispatcher received an anonymous call from a man. We have the audio, so we're going to play it for you here in a minute. You'll notice that the call has a couple dial tones and the conversation's kind of broken up into three calls. So what happens is that the anonymous caller hangs up the phone after a couple sentences, but the dispatcher stays on the line and waited in case the caller picked up his phone again, which he does, and says a few more words and then hangs up again. Then the third time, the dispatcher actually calls him back to try to continue the conversation. Where is she, go? This boy? Yes.
1: Uh, I got information on how that girl was killed in Barton Lake. What's your name? That's uh, not important. Okay, what's the information? Uh, she was raped right before she was killed. She was wearing blue jeans, a white top, and a red or a- Orange top over top of the weight top, Uh, blonde hair, old 5'11", she was found face down in the creek with a tire on top of her shoulders and head, and uh, that's what I like to tell you. Okay, so what kind of information was released to the public before this caller called? Well, basically, the only people who knew
0: that Diane was strangled with her purse were the police. It wasn't until they removed the tire from her head that they saw the purse straps around her neck. So not even the boy who discovered her body or her own family would have known. And nobody knew the results yet from the forensics autopsy. So they didn't know yet about the semen found in her body so to say that she was raped was a, an unknown thing because the result hadn't come back.
1: Right so the caller knew information that only the police knew so this makes him credible Super. of probably being there or had actually been the murderer Right. Did you see it happen or did you do it? super
0: suspicious completely suspicious how was that even helping the cops like they already knew all that information you were just confirming it all with them like how thanks tips already on it and he didn't want to get involved he said oh I don't want to get involved my name doesn't matter yeah so the cops like well then why the fuck did you call us like it was useless so did they trace the call? You bet your sweet bippy they did. So immediately after the caller hung up, the dispatcher began tracing the call with the help of Bell Canada. In order to trace the call, the dispatcher locks in the line which keeps it open while another officer goes to the location of the traced call. The officer is to pick up the phone and confirm with the dispatcher who's still on the line to make sure that they've found the correct phone. Whether the phone is on or off the hook, the 911 dispatcher is the only one who can disconnect the locked call. The police were dispatched to an old white and blue phone booth outside Gate 6 at DeFasco, a steel manufacturer in the area. At the time, there were so many men employed here. People say that you can just assume that if you lived in Hamilton or the surrounding area, you worked or have worked at DeFasco. Photos were taken of the phone booth and it was dusted for fingerprints, but the caller was never found. And the call was not released to the public where it would go on to collect dust for many, many years.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So they didn't even try to release the audio to figure out if anyone knew this voice.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that they were trying to find the person on their own before releasing that to the public. And then when they just couldn't get anywhere, I don't know, they just gave up on it. So where's the first place investigators are going to look? Diane's love life. Was she seeing anyone? Any ex-boyfriends? Well, there's a couple. First up is William Cooper, who she once was engaged to. He and Diane had a very toxic relationship where Diane was physically abused. One time she tried to break up with William, so he beat her and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Eventually... Oh, great. I know, I know. Eventually, she was able to break free and William moved to the West Coast where he would later go to jail for sexual assault on someone else. Diane and William had been broken up for about a year at the time of her murder and he had just been released from jail. He was in Vancouver the day of the 19th, but not seen at night. However, he was seen the next day in Vancouver on the 20th. So the only way you can get to Ontario on the same day is by plane. So is it possible that... He flew to Hamilton for the night and back to Vancouver the next day. I can't find any flight records if they were checked. But William has a criminal record, so what kind of people did he hang out with? Were his alibi witnesses reliable or even telling the truth? So either way, I mean, the likelihood of him taking those flights is pretty slim with that timeline, in my opinion. So next up is Diane's most recent boyfriend, Colin Vanderbrink. He and Diane had dated on and off for about four years. They had their ups and downs and things were also sometimes violent. Colin stated that both of them had cheated on each other on more than one occasion. They lived together for a short while and were engaged at one point as well. On June 14th, five days before Diane's murder, Colin spent the night at Diane's and said this was the last time they had intercourse. The next night, on the 15th, they went to Malarkey's in the Fiesta Mall. Colin said that they got into an argument, so Diane got up and left the bar by herself. Colin stated that they would always take the shortcut through the forest to get to Malarky's and back to her apartment. On June 19th, the day of her murder, Diane called Colin at his work and broke up with him. A close friend of Diane recalls her saying that she, quote, was finally free. Colin's alibi for June 19th was that he worked at a Toronto-area bar until around 1 a.m. and then stuck around for drinks with another bartender. And this was verified, and Colin was cleared as a suspect.
1: Huh. Interesting. But, I mean, that does give some information that this was a regular route that she took home from that bar. Exactly. Where she was found. So Right. Someone didn't take her in there. It was somewhere where
0: she was walking. Right. But what about the witness who saw that couple arguing outside her apartment at 1.30 in the morning? She said the man was dressed in cowboy boots or motorcycle boots. Well Colin had a motorcycle. Mm. Had he come to the bar after his shift to try to win her back? And did they get into another argument as he followed her home? The bar he worked at isn't that close to malarkey's. So let's say that even if he did get off work at 1 a.m. and left at 1.15... It would still take about 45 minutes to get back to Hamilton, where Diane was, which would be around 2 a.m., but that's between 1.30 and 2.30, according to that witness who saw those two people arguing. Remember when I said there was sperm found on Diane's clothing and vaginal swabs? Mm -hmm. Well, there was sperm belonging to two different men. Most of the sperm was from one donor, but a small amount was found on Diane's underwear, which belonged to Colin. Science has proved that semen can survive on a garment in the washing machine, which is what happened in this case. So no, Diane was not wearing five-day-old underwear. Colin was never named a suspect, so the fact that his semen were found on her underwear were omitted in court. So the ex-boyfriends weren't high on their list anymore. But that's where this case went cold. For 17 years.
1: I don't know. Colin seems like a good suspect to me, but he was never
0: an actual suspect. So they obviously had good reason.
1: Yeah, and if the semen didn't match the new, like, there was two different types, right? His right. was like a trace amount. So that makes sense, then, that they would exclude him because basically they're like, well, it's a different guy.
0: Well, unless he found her hooking up with some guy at the bar... And followed her home and killed her after the fact. Maybe, like, he walked in on her, like, with some... Not saying that she's the type of person to do that, but, like, what if he was coming to see her after he got off work and saw her with another guy or something?
1: But She left the bar at 11.45, right? Yeah. So, I just don't know. What was she doing between 11.45 and 1? If it only takes her... If she's walking, it can't take her Right. right Let's let's give her fifteen minutes to get home. Yeah. So it's midnight. Colin's still working. Right. Although although it does make sense then if she did you know find someone at the bar that she wanted to hook up with you know a sneaky little whatever in the bathroom yeah. or in or the, the alleyway door. like anywhere right then that almost would make sense why there wasn't
0: why there was a delay
1: like if. You know, like maybe she didn't start walking home until Until like thirty
0: in the morning. Yeah, until later. Right. And he was super pissed off. I mean, I can't, I'm scared to throw his name out there and say that because he was never named a suspect and I just don't want to get in shit for it. Okay. (laughs) Because he was never a real suspect. But yes, that kind of idea does go through your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. They had obviously good reason to believe that it wasn't him, and he did participate quite a bit in helping the cops investigate, and he did testify. And... Okay. So, right. they seem to be pretty convinced that it had nothing to do with the ex-boyfriends. But were there, like, any other similar cases or attacks in the area around that time? Apparently, there were over 2,000 reports of sexual assaults and rape in the Stony Creek area that spanned up to 1997, but police hadn't linked any of them together and hadn't noticed any similarities yet. It wasn't until 1997 when police started looking into multiple reports of sexually motivated break-ins and rapes in the Stony Creek area.
1: That's a, a lot of time and a lot of cases to not link any of them. I don't know.
0: I don't know. It's just, it's so weird.
1: Were they just thinking that they were all just individual attacks? Clearly. Clearly. It seems like a lot, though, for one area. Were there any mm-hmm. similar cases where they were found in that same forest area? Not necessarily in the forest, but nearby. Nearby.
0: Still. Things happened nearby. And Stony Creek is a very small area anyways, to begin with. So what was happening was a masked man was breaking into young women's homes in the middle of the night and would sexually assault them. He was known to steal items from their homes as some sort of trophy. After receiving over 500 tips, it would only be two that led investigators to James Wren, a 46-year-old overweight Caucasian man with gray hair, a mustache, and glasses. And this guy had an underwear fetish. Yuck. Yuck. Police found over four hundred pairs of women's underwear that were labeled and organized into plastic bags.
1: Oh no. <laughs> Put the lotion
0: in the basket. Okay, girl. <laughs> okay, there's the <laughs> phone of the day.
1: I never there your it, is.
0: silence of the lambs, everybody. Silence of the lambs. <laughs> You amaze me. Put the lotion on the skin. <laughs> Come on, do you have you ever even seen it? No. Isn't it scary? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's scary. I you mean, that
1: it's, shit. Just, it's just a classic, but it's, it's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> okay, continue, continue. Sorry. Okay. They
0: found stolen jewelry, keys, and over 200 stolen photos from his victims that were made into collages. He even stole one of his victim's prosthetic fingers.
1: What the okay, fuck? who the yeah. fuck does that?
0: I know. No, Wren was already in their system with a criminal record of having sex with a minor, indecent exposure, and a peeping tom. But these new charges would go on to label Wren as the Stony Creek rapist. He was convicted of breaking and entering, theft careless storage of a firearm and unlawfulness in a home. He pled guilty to sexual assault with a weapon and being masked with the intent to commit an indictable offense. He served 10 years for these offenses. So the reason why Wren wasn't a suspect in Diane's murder was because all of his attacks were inside and not in a public place. And my other guess is that he was never accused of actually murdering any of his victims. So this would be unlikely for him to change his pattern. But it looks like this guy didn't kick his underwear fetish. Because in 2017, at the age of 66, senior citizen James Wren was sentenced to four years for stealing underwear from female tenants in his
1: apartment building. Oh, well, and also I will say, Diane's underwear were left at the scene. Yeah, exactly. They weren't taken, and I feel like this guy wouldn't have let that fly. No, the treasured panties. He needs to label them and smell them, and ooh, (laughs) so (laughs) gross. So I guess in this new
0: thing in the apartments was the girls' underwear were going missing from the laundry room, from the communal laundry room, and then he was busted on camera, so the police got a search warrant for his apartment, and when they showed up, they found him naked in his bed, lying on top of a mountain of stolen underwear.
1: Stop it. A mountain. Oh my god. How did he get away with this for so long? Oh, people are People that are creepy and doing little things like that, like stealing underwear, you can
0: go so unnoticed. But, I mean, I guess he got carried away. Jesus Christ. You got a little, you got a little careless there. <laughs> oh my God. Disgusting. But James Wren was only convicted for a portion of those sexual assault reports in the area. While police were investigating Wren, they also noticed a pattern that made them to believe there was another sexual predator in the area. Over the course of 17 years, at least 10 women were attacked by the same man around the Stony Creek area between 1980 and 1997, and police believed Diane was one of those 10 women. In January of 1998, the Ravine Rapist Task Force was created, and that 911 call was brought back out of the cold case files. That anonymous phone call was finally released to the public with a hotline people could call with any tips to identify the unknown man but no real leads were coming in.
1: But I just feel like it's almost too little too late. I know. So much time has passed as well.
0: Yeah. Who's going to recognize that voice 17 years later? So at the same time, the ravine task force were looking into the case of another one of those 10 women from 17 years prior. She survived her attack, which was seven weeks after Diane's murder, and only half a block away from the ravine in which Diane was found. Her name is Debbie Robertson. On August 9th, 1981, 23-year-old Debbie was leaving her boyfriend's place at 11 p.m. because he had to work a night shift at DeFasco. She was walking home on a sidewalk next to a field and at this time was unaware of what happened to Diane. She noticed a man walking towards her who she recognized from high school. As they approached each other, the man said loudly, excuse me, and grabbed her arm. Debbie said, don't scare me like that. But the man smirked and said, I'm taking you to the field, which was across the street. But when Debbie puts up a fight, he pulls out a screwdriver and punches her in the face, almost knocking her tooth out. He tried to put his hand down her pants, but they were too tight because she used a safety pin to fasten the fly. And then he pushes her to the ground, And she kicks at him, so he straddles her on her left side and stabs her with the screwdriver through the right ear. Oh my god. And she survived this. Wow. He continues to stab her about five times in the neck and the side of the head. Then Debbie remembers something she learned from a TV show, and that was to play dead. So that's what she did, and it worked. She says, quote, I let all the air out of my body, closed my eyes. He was still on top of me and moved my head from the right to the left. I thought I was a goner. I was bleeding heavily. I then felt him get up and leave. Miraculously, Debbie was able to drag her half paralyzed body back to the sidewalk and screamed for help. And a family drove up and then the police were called.
1: This is terrifying. I know. But this was in 1981?
0: Only seven weeks after Diane's murder. Debbie's skull was fractured. The screwdriver just barely missed the part of her brain in control of her breathing. She was temporarily paralyzed on her right side and had to learn how to walk again. She still suffers hearing loss and permanent nerve damage. As Debbie was being loaded into the ambulance, Debbie tells them she knows her attacker and they went to the Orchard Park High School together. She said his name was either, quote, Rick, Rob, or Russell. All ours.
1: Okay. But she can't remember who it is specifically from high school. It's either these three names. Okay.
0: Three days after her attack, two officers came to Debbie in the ICU, and they had her 1976 yearbook from Orchard Park Secondary. As she made her way through the pages, she stops and says, that's him, that's him and she musters all the strength in her left hand and points to the top left corner of page 42. The man in the photo was Bob Badgerow, short for Robert.
1: Oh, there you go, Rob.
0: There's your Rob? She was 100% sure. In high school, she recalls him as being attractive, loud, an athlete, but not great academically. They used to wait outside in the lines for the school bus, and he had dark brown hair touching his shoulders and a small mustache. Debbie also recalls that Bajero was always checking out women, including herself, and it made her uncomfortable. Two days after Debbie pointed out Bajero's photo, he was arrested and brought in for questioning. According to his fiance at the time and her parents, who were all questioned at the same time together, Badgerow was at their house with them on the night of Debbie's attack, watching the news until 11 p.m. He also had to go to work the night shift at DeFasco and clocked in at 11.24. Police noticed that the description of Debbie's attacker wasn't the same as Badgerow's yearbook photo. Just a week prior, he had gotten a perm for his upcoming wedding, and Debbie also didn't mention that he had a scar on his upper eye, so the police thought that these were inconsistent. They also didn't think that Badgerow had enough time to attack Debbie between leaving his fiance's house and clocking in at work 24 minutes later. So the sergeants called Debbie and informed her that Badgerow was cleared as a suspect. Damn. Can you imagine like you you know the face of that person? You pointed him out and you fucking found him.
1: And they're gonna say no. Your memory is, is is wrong. But she knew it was someone from high school. She said that right away. And then yeah. she pointed him out. I mean, why would she lie? And the name, though. Yeah. I would like to hear this guy's voice and see if it is comparable to the caller about Diane's mm-hmm. case.
0: And another thing is that The parents and the fiancé being asked together is ridiculous. Well, that's not protocol now. No, like, of course they're going to protect him. They're just going to go off of each other and use the same story. They were all in the same room
1: being interviewed. Yeah, they should have been interviewed separately, and that needs to happen, because otherwise they just say the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So fast forward
0: to 1998. The Ravine Task Force was reading Debbie's case and decided to look into Badgerow again. It's been 17 years, but what they have now that they didn't have then is this fancy new thing called DNA forensics. So investigators followed Badgerow to one of our good old Canadian coffee shops, Tim Hortons, and waited for him to drink his coffee and leave so that they could go take his used coffee cup and obtain his DNA. And what they found was absolutely shocking. He was a perfect match to the DNA found in Diane Wierendowicz's body.
1: Whoa, the
0: semen? The semen. Damn! 17 years later and Diane's case finally has a prime suspect. So not only were they going to arrest Badgerow for the murder of Diane Wierendowicz, he would also be arrested for the attempted murder of Debbie Robertson. But this wasn't going to be a walk in the park. Little did they know, this would turn out to be the most trials anyone has ever been through for the same first-degree murder charge in Canada. No one would see a verdict for another 21 years. But that's going to have to wait until our next episode, which will have your head spinning. So until then, we'll be wondering... Whose Crime Is It Anyway?
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? This was episode 13. So if you haven't listened to the other 12, go to your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and follow us on Twitter. We are in the Twitter sphere now at Whose Crime Pod. Until next time. Bye. Toodles. <laughs>